For the bulk of this year, we have been in a study of John's gospel, but we have pressed pause on that for the duration of the Advent season. And so each week we are uh, reading passages of scripture that have to do with Advent. And each week our sermons concern what has historically been the primary themes of each week of Advent. So last week uh, was all about hope, I believe. And this week we are talking about peace. And so Romans chapter 15, we're going to read verses 4 through verse 13. Romans 15. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises is to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And this is the word of the Lord, church. Have you ever noticed that Christmas is virtually the only holiday season that has its own musical genre? I mean, I mean there, there are songs for other holidays, but, but nothing like Christmas, right? In the church, we will sing songs at Easter that relate to the resurrection and stuff like that. But, but outside of uh, that at Easter, I mean, there's not like a whole other world of music out there where people are just singing about the season of Easter. No, that, that's really only Christmas, isn't it? And for me, historically... I'm not a big fan. Uh, I think you're either like a Christmas music person or you aren't. And Jingle Bells, Rudolph, meh. Like, it's just not my thing. However, since having children, there is something I love about the, about like the wonder uh, that our kids have. Uh, They're constantly turning on Christmas music at the house. Um, or in the car, they're asking for us to turn it on. You know those radio stations where it becomes like 100% Christmas music at, in, on like November 1st? I hate that. Like, that's just, ugh, come on. Um, my kids love it. And it's been really fun to just kind of watch that and, and to nurture that as well. And so the other day, uh, I found myself listening to Christmas music. And in particular, I was listening to uh, John Lennon's Christmas song. You know, the one where the chorus of children sing, war is over, if you want it. It's not really a Christmas song. Uh, it's really more of like a peace song, a world peace song. 
uh, and, and maybe a hot take as a Beatles fan. I think it's the better of the solo Beatles Christmas songs, as opposed to Paul McCartney's Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time, which is junk. Uh, John Lennon's definitely wins out. Uh, fight me. Um, so I was listening to that the other day, and I was actually, I was thinking about our text today. I was thinking about this passage of scripture and just the theme of this week, listening to this song that is about peace. And, and it dawned on me uh, that I, I, I don't really know what the Bible means by peace. Um, the, whenever scripture talks about peace, is it always talking about the same thing? Um, and, and my assumption was that probably most of the time when the Bible's talking about peace, it's talking about what John Lennon's talking about in that song, which is no war or battle or, or like a season that's free from like chaos or fighting. And so that led me to do kind of a deep dive over the past week on what scripture is talking about when it's talking about peace. And what I learned was really interesting because what I learned was in many ways the opposite of what I thought, at least as it pertains to the New Testament. Um, I think most of the time when we think about peace or when we hear passages of scripture on peace, our inclination is probably to think that it's talking about inner peace. So not necessarily like freedom from war uh, or battle or chaos, but, but rather something that's going on internally rather than externally. Uh, take a verse like verse 13 in our text today, uh, how Paul kind of wrapped up that little section. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. I mean, we don't read that as having anything to do with war or like a time of peace from war. We, we read that as being like an internal conflict that God is bringing peace to. Like God is going to bring peace to my being through Christ. He's going to resolve the conflicts that are within me. Scholar Daniel Archia says that there are actually five different ways that the word peace is used in the New Testament. The first, and actually the most rare way, is to talk about peace in terms of it being the opposite of war and chaos. That's actually the rarest way that the word peace is used in the New Testament. The second way peace is used is to speak of good relationships with other people, right? That like if our relationship is solid, then we're not in conflict, right? And so there is peace between us. A third way the New Testament talks about peace is as a, a type of greeting. So Jesus at one point uh, appears after his resurrection, he appears in a locked room Beside the disciples, he just suddenly pops up. And what does he say? Peace be with you. And what he's saying there is, hey, don't freak out, <laughs> right? Even though I just appeared out of thin air. Uh, peace be with you. Like, because everything's okay. Peace. Um, an another way that peace is used, and a fourth way in the New Testament, is as a virtue. Uh, so think about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace. 
which seems to be this state of inner tranquility that is produced by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, that through the Holy Spirit, God produces peace within me. It is a product of the Spirit in my life. And again, maybe that's perhaps the way we most are inclined to think about peace. Most of us have not lived in a war zone, right? Most of us, when we talk about peace or think about peace or pray for peace, we're not talking about freedom from war. We're talking about some kind of inner contentment that we're seeking, some kind of inner tranquility, freedom from anxiety. Uh, I think that's the peace that Paul's talking about in the verse we read a minute ago. May the God, right, may God give you peace, like fill you with peace through the power of the Holy Spirit. But then there's a fifth way that peace is used in the New Testament. And it's actually at the core of our text today. And that is peace as right relationship with God through Christ. Peace as right relationship with God through Christ. For example, in Romans chapter 5, which came several chapters before where we're at today, Romans 5, Paul said this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is saying that through Christ, God has restored those who have faith to right relationship with him. And friends, I believe that this is, in a sense, the gateway to peace in all contexts, because unless you have been restored into right relationship with God through Christ, all other forms of peace that we've described will be elusive in your life and in our world. There is only one form of peace that truly changes your station in life, and that is the reconciliation of this conflict that has waged, has been waged between you and God. The, 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 the word the Bible often uses or the translation that's often given, given for the conflict that has existed between you and God is the word enmity. And, and that's a word that means like active hostility. And what's so interesting about that active hostility is that there are people who are living lives that are actively hostile to God, but yet they're oblivious to the fact that there is any war being waged. They're oblivious to the fact that there is conflict there. And it could be that that's part of your story, that there was a point in your life where you were just doing your own thing, you were on your own path, you were following whatever you thought was best, and even though you didn't realize it, your life was in opposition to Christ. You weren't following him. He wasn't your Lord and master. And basically what the Bible presents to us is this notion of if you are not with him, you are against him. Even though like consciously you may not think, no, I'm not actively against him. I don't even think he's real. And yet scripturally, that would be you actively working against the will of God. So Paul says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has resolved the conflict through his death and resurrection, and he has um, eliminated the enmity that has existed. Let's look at our text 
Let's go back to verse 1 of Romans 15. I didn't read this at the top, but I want to read it now just to set a little context for us. Paul begins this whole chapter by saying, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is where we picked up in our text. And so may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord, right? Or in like union with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So the Roman church that Paul was writing to here was a unique melting pot of believers. I mean, Rome was one of the largest cities on the planet at this point in time. It is a melting pot. And so the church in Rome, yes, has Jewish believers, but also has many Gentile believers as well, or non-Jewish believers. And that was the case in many parts of the Roman Empire, um, especially in the more cosmopolitan cities. You have this, this coming together of two completely different cultures in the Christian church. So in the final final chapters of Romans, Paul is imploring his readers to do a couple of things. First, he has been calling them to practice agape love, which is that self-sacrificial form of love that Jesus displayed and also called his followers to. And so Paul also following the footsteps of Jesus has been calling the church in Rome to live in a sacrificial way towards each other. But then his second commendation to the people, and this is in the chapter before this, chapter 14, his second commendation was this, for them to live lives of non-judgment toward their brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul seems to view judgment over, especially over like differing secondary opinions to be a primary source of conflict in the church. People who are getting sideways with each other over petty things or over secondary beliefs, over things that may not be totally unimportant, but, but don't like really matter in the context of the church. And that's exactly what's happening in so many churches today. Some of you have experienced conflict in the church that is not over primary issues of faith, but over secondary matters and, and issues where one person or a group of people is being judgmental towards another group of people. Paul says there are two kinds of folks in the church. There are strong Christians and there are weak Christians, like there are mature believers and there are maturing Believers, And those who are mature have to bear with those who are maturing within the church. And in, in, in a very similar way, it's like what Jesus is talking about when he says that you need to focus on the log in your own eye before you worry about the speck of dust in your neighbor's eye. 
Non-judgment relies on us having a grasp on which issues are primary and which issues are secondary, and a willingness to allow others to be different than we are, and in a different place of growth and development than you may think you are. And that takes a great deal of emotional and spiritual maturity, doesn't it? But what you have when you have a community that is practicing agape-centered non-judgment is you have a community of peace, don't you? When we're each seeking not to judge those around us, but to judge ourselves and to seek to exorcise our own sin and to deal with our own issues. One of the most common things I find myself saying to my kids is, that's not your responsibility. For some reason, uh, our older girls, if they see their younger sisters doing something they're not supposed to be doing, they take it upon themselves to scold them. And I have to say, that's not your responsibility, right? That's mom and dad's responsibility. If they're doing something unsafe, help them and come tell us what's going on, right? But, but it's not up to you to judge whether something that they're doing is right or wrong, and it's certainly not up to you to dole out punishment to them. And friends, when we assume the role of judge over other people, um, not just for their sins, but also for their differences, we are doing the exact same thing. We're taking something that is God's responsibility, and we're making it our own. And there are two big problems with that. One is that we're usurping God's authority, which is not a good look. The second thing we're doing is we're creating internal conflict for ourselves, aren't we? Because when you make yourself responsible for everyone else to correct them and fix them or to, to dole out punishment to them, it's just a recipe for a complete lack of internal peace, isn't it? It is you working against the spirit rather than submitting to the spirit. Agape-centered non-judgment, however, will lead us to a couple of things. First, agape-centered non-judgment will lead us towards sacrificing our preferences for the good of others. In particular, agape-centered non-judgment may lead us to not engage in some perfectly valid behaviors because people we know and love view those behaviors as wrong. This is at the heart of some of what Paul's teaching here. Very common thing here in the South is that Christians differ over drinking alcohol, right? Many of you are well aware of this. And whatever your view of drinking alcohol is, it is a decidedly secondary view because it is not a primary matter of faith. Like, nobody is uh, going to heaven or hell because they had a drink of alcohol. Scripture's never making that case. Um, and we would, we would just take the position as a church that just drinking alcohol is not wrong, that that's not something Scripture ever says. On the other hand, drunkenness clearly is a sin, and Scripture is beyond clear about that. 
However, there are plenty of brothers and sisters in Christ out there, and maybe even some of you guys, who would disagree with that. Um, and what Paul's saying is, fine. Fine. There are people who disagree on this matter. One of the things he mentions in chapter 14 is uh, eating certain things. Like there are some people who are only eating vegetables because in, in like their moral framework, that is the best thing to be doing. There are other people who think, no, we can eat whatever we want to eat. And Paul says, who cares? Fine. Let them do what they want to do. Right? What Paul is saying to the mature believers is this. The mature believer forsakes his or her own need to be right, even if they are, so as to serve the other. In other words, if me drinking alcohol is creating tension with you because you believe it to be wrong, then the mature Christian says, fine, I just won't drink alcohol. Because our peace with each other is far more important than me being right. So in Paul's view, it's not only better, but it is a sign of love, agape, for you to make some personal sacrifices so that another person might grow in their faith and spiritual maturity. So that's huge, isn't it? And that requires a great deal of humility, doesn't it? You're wrong, but because this is a minor or petty or secondary issue, I'm going to forsake my need to be right. And I'm certainly not going to try to prove to you that I'm right. Because all that will create is unrest between us. And what Jesus seems to be pointing us to, what Paul seems to be pointing us to, is that the peace and unity of the body of Christ is paramount. The second thing Paul says is that agape-centered non-judgment will lead us toward the virtue of patience. But his language surrounding patience isn't suggestive, it is imperative. In other words, Paul's not saying, I hope you do this. He's saying, you must do this. This is verse 1 again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Again, pleasing myself probably looks like me doing whatever it takes to prove to you that I'm right and you're wrong. So Paul has presented this delineation between the strong and the weak. Both the strong and the weak here are Christians. But the strong are those who are more spiritually mature. I think Paul's language um, insinuates that he would include himself among the strong, which is probably good since he's an apostle, right? But note this. Paul believes that the cost of being a strong Christian is that you have a responsibility to those who are weak. Your responsibility, though, is not to judge them or to dole out punishment to them when you think they've erred or to prove to them that you're right and they're wrong. Here what he's saying is if you are a strong Christian, then you need to operate as a servant to those who are maturing. You need to have patience with the weak Christians when they fall, fail or fall into sin or hold incorrect views and lovingly and humbly guide them towards what is right. Because that's how they're ultimately going to grow and mature, is you 
sacrificing for their good. Now, surprise, surprise, Jesus is the model for all of this. This is verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. How, church, has Christ welcomed you? Well, has he welcomed you because of your great spiritual maturity and sinlessness? Has he welcomed you into his family because you have all the right views doctrinally, right? Has he welcomed you in his family because like, you look great and you sound great and you're presenting the perfect front to everybody else? No, no, no. None of that is the case. He has welcomed you in spite of your sin and in spite of your weakness. If you're a believer, you are a living, breathing example of God's forbearance. God has borne with you rather than judging you because had he judged you on your merits alone, you would not be here right now. I would not be here right now, but rather God with great patience has endured your immaturity and my immaturity and sin and has provided a way for peace to be brought into the conflict that has waged between us and him through the death and resurrection of Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Verse 8, for I tell you that Christ, what did he do? He became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So what has Christ done? Well, he's modeled his agape by becoming a servant to all. To the circumcised, which is another way of saying the Jews, he became a servant. Why? Paul says he became a servant to show God's truthfulness, to show that God keeps his promises. Well, what promises are we talking about? Well, the promises, Paul says, that God made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, these promises to bring about a redeemer and a Messiah. And a part of that promise or covenant, as they are known in the Bible, was to make the people of Abraham, the Jews, a blessing to all the nations, to make them a blessing to the entire world. That's verse nine. Christ became a servant to confirm Firm the covenant promise that the Gentiles would also be blessed through the people of Israel and come also to glorify God. So because Christ comes through the line of Abraham, because Jesus is a Jew, and because he is the Savior of the whole world, not just the Savior for Jewish people, Abraham's descendants have thus become a blessing to the entire world, to all the nations. And then what Paul does is he proof texts this. He gives us four different passages from the sacred texts of the Jews, the Old Testament as we would think of it. But he quotes from Deuteronomy, from Samuel, uh, from Psalms, from Isaiah. Um, that's verses 9 through 12 there. I'm not going to go through all of those. But Paul's basically saying, hey, I'm not making this up. 
right? This is stuff we all know, those of you who, like me, are Jewish. These are things we've been reading about and hearing about our entire life, that this isn't just a promise for us. It is also a promise for the whole world. Christ has died to bring peace between God and man, and if man has peace with God, then man should have peace with any other men who also have peace with God. Let me say that again. Christ has died to bring peace between God and man. And if man has peace with God, then man should have peace with any other men who have peace with God. Hence, Jesus is saying that we, his followers, should be known for our love for each other. So pull back and look at your life. Where in your life is there a lack of peace? Where does the battle rage? Where is there strife? Where is there tension? Where is there turmoil? Where is there trauma? Where is there unrest? I want to focus as I close on three of the most common areas where these wars or these battles wage inside of us. Uh, the first is this, and this is kind of top of the list. Has peace been made between you and God through Christ? Has that actually happened in your life? I know you are at church, and maybe you grew up in the church, and maybe you've gone to church your whole life, but has there actually been a point in your life where Jesus has become your Lord and Master, and where the enmity that has existed because you've just been following your own path, where that has been removed through faith in Christ. It's not surprising, I think, that the language of battle is often used in that context because people will say, have you surrendered to Christ? And that may sound like a strange thing to ask, but, but it really is what Jesus is demanding of us, that we stop pursuing our own path, that we stop being our own Lord and Master, and that we stop trying to save ourselves or fix ourselves or fix our lives, that, that this is the keystone to peace all the way around in all of these things we've talked about today, that without this peace, nothing, nothing else will really be possible. That, that if we don't have this peace, then what does it matter if we have any of these other forms of peace? Because this is the one that truly is eternal. It's where we have to begin. So, so how does one surrender to Christ? Well, the good news here, and I think this can sometimes be confusing, is that it largely is not about something you do. You don't do anything that makes him save you or that somehow makes you savable. It doesn't happen through a prayer. Uh, it doesn't happen through you participating in some church ritual. It's more about recognizing what he has already done on the cross for you and for me and responding to it with belief and faith. Recognizing that his salvation is a present reality. 
And, and, and then that belief is evidenced in your life by the fact that you stop following yourself as Lord and begin following him as Lord. And to use the Bible word, you repent. You, you turn off of the path you were on and you turn onto a new path in which he is master and you live as if he is master. And that's what we would call conversion. And there are a lot of things within that where it's like, man, I don't fully understand the mechanics of all of this. Sometimes it can be like, well, what comes first here, the chicken or the egg? But, but here's what we know. Christ has died and Christ has risen. And in doing that, he has secured my redemption. If, if, I, if I choose to continue on my own path, then I'm effectively not following him. But if he is Lord, and I see him as Lord, then this is about me repenting of what I was, and where I was headed, and what I was doing, and about me now submitting to him as king. And this is Jesus' basic gospel message. Repent and believe. This is primary and, and if you feel like this isn't a step that you've taken, guys, let's hook up and talk about it. Because at the very least, I, like I would love to just dialogue with you or pray for you or walk with you as you take steps into following Jesus. Or if this is something you have done, man, let's let's rejoice together that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. Get with me. Get with Justin after the service. And let's talk. So this is not only number one on my list, but it is this like singularly the most important thing in all of this. The second area where many of us lack peace is in our relationships. And isn't this the time of year where that becomes uh, like glaringly obvious for many of us? Uh, it's like, man, I hope that I can have like that family dinner. And there be peace and not argument or tension or frustration. Have you ever been at one of those family dinners and you've been so glad that one person in particular didn't show up because it just made things easier? Man, some of us in our lives, we have broken relationships or unresolved relationships or things that are just not cleared up with other people. And it seems to be the case, based on our teaching today, that God's desire for us is that we would be a people who would humble ourselves in those situations and seek peace. And that this, to some extent, is what Jesus means in the Beatitudes when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. That we would be a people who in all things are setting ourselves aside and seeking right relationship, both with God and with other people. You know, Jesus says this interesting thing in the Sermon on the Mount. This is in Matthew 5. Uh, what he says is, if you are offering your gift at the altar, he's right, primarily speaking to Jews, you're going to the temple, you're offering a gift to the Lord at the altar. He says, but if you're there and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar 
and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus says, if you're there at the altar and you're, you're literally worshiping, you're offering your gift to the Lord, and what you recognize is that your brother has something against you, God doesn't want your gift in that moment. What God wants is restored relationship. So God wants you to leave that there and, and just take a few minutes and go deal with this other thing. Now, here's what's fascinating to me about that passage. Jesus isn't talking about you having an issue with someone else. He's talking about you seeking to fix an issue that other people have with you. Right? If you know your brother has something against you, then you go to him and deal with it. Isn't that interesting? Like, like, what is it that you need to ask someone else for forgiveness for? It's not just, how do I need to forgive people, but, but what have you done that needs to get cleared up? What is the misunderstanding, maybe, that you need to address with another person? Or what is the argument that has just never been resolved? The principle seems to be that the mature Christian is the one who humbles his or herself in order to restore the broken relationship. So, so who do you need to be resolved to this morning? And then finally, I think a primary source of unrest for most of us are just unconfessed and unrepentant sin. Sins in our lives. Uh, what are the things that you do that you know are wrong and yet you have no desire to stop? Or you have made no attempt whatsoever to stop? I, I mean, this could literally be anything, right? Selfishness, laziness, anger, addiction, lying on and on. Scripture teaches that God desires us to confess our sin both to him and, hey, get this, to other people. We confess our sins corporately every week, but... God's desire also is that you would vocalize these things to brothers and sisters in Christ. I think what confession does is it opens up a doorway for healing for us. There is something about verbalizing what's going on inside of me that, that, that makes it more real. And, and it's like when I verbalize it and it, it's actually out there on the table, then I really have to do something about it, especially when I have told someone else what's going on. Some of you have experienced that before. You've allowed something to go on, whether internally or externally in your life. But once you say something about it to another person, it becomes more real to you in that moment. And also now I have this other person who's going to ask me about it. If we're not willing to vocalize our sin or our struggles to another person, it can grow like a cancer and ultimately wreak way more havoc than it would have initially. Again, let me mention, um, I think that's one of the roles that elders within the church play. Um, we are not your confessors in the sense that you have to confess sin to us so that we could somehow forgive you. That's not at all what Scripture's talking about. Um, 
But what we can do is provide a safe space for you to share things um, that don't leave our confidence. And also find prayer and help and accountability. And even if that's not me or Justin that you want to sit down with, maybe you have a trusted um, gospel-centered friend in your life who loves Jesus and who desires to walk with you in that way. Um, I would highly recommend you engaging with another person as you seek to, as Scripture says, put sin to death in your own life. So, uh, I think taking steps in all of these areas, even if they're half steps, will result in more peace in your life. Um, in fact, I think the Bible makes a case, a strong case, uh, that Christian maturity and spiritual formation is, is largely about coming to experience more and more and more and more peace in our lives. And so if you feel like that's just not something you have right now, take heart and find hope in the fact that uh, through the presence of the Holy Spirit, uh, through the sanctification work that God is doing within us, as we continue down this road of life and faith, as we continue to follow Jesus, even though our world will continue to be broken and we will continue to struggle with different things, I do think that we will find a greater and greater and greater experience of peace until ultimately we find perfect peace eternally in Christ, right? Who is returning, as we've said, to establish his kingdom of peace forever. Jesus has already won that battle, guys. Jesus already has the victory. War is over. If you want it, let us pray. God, we thank you uh, for the truth of your word today. And I pray, Father, that, uh, that whatever it is uh, that we have heard in today's scripture, Lord, that you would imprint it on our hearts, that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, that you would give us uh, a desire to be doers of your word. Uh, I pray, Lord, that this community would be marked by people, myself included, who don't just come and sit in this room every Sunday and hear your scripture and leave and nothing at all be different. But, Father, that we would all be a people who are committed not only to you and your work and your leading, but, God, that we are committed to this project that you are engaged in of growing us up into Christ. And so, Father, help us to partner with you in that work. Help us to desire change in our own lives. And I pray, Father, that in pursuing those things, we would actually find greater and greater peace. So no matter what it is for us, whether it is sin we need to repent of or it's relationships that we need to pursue or maybe it is stepping into faith in Christ for the first time. Uh, I pray, God, that you would give us your grace in all of those things. Um, send your spirit before us as we seek to be obedient. And Father, I pray that uh, as we step into these things, Lord, that we would find that you are there with us and that you truly are holding us up. We thank you, and we love you, and it is in your name we pray.
Amen.